Nyata. Hello. It's Alison here from a little church on Peak Warren Country in southwest Victoria called Sanctuary. Today I'm reflecting on a story about seven brothers and a hapless widow and falling satellites and what it means to live. And you'll find the story proper in Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. Some of you might remember a quirky TV show called Northern Exposure. A young urban Jewish doctor is sent to small town Alaska to pay off his tuition debt. And there he encounters all sorts of eccentric inhabitants, including Maggie. Now Maggie's a bush pilot, and all her boyfriends happen to die in bizarre ways. For example, there's Dave, who freezes to death on a glacier, and Rick, who was killed by a falling satellite. Her mother tries to console her. Men, she says, they're always dying, and we're left to ship the body and clean out the closet. And then her mother lists all of her boyfriends who died suddenly and strangely, starting with Leland, who's just dropped dead, playing pool. Her morbid litany goes on and on, and because of the kind of show it is, it's hilarious, but it's also very mocking. We encounter just this sort of mocking in tonight's Gospel reading. As the Sadducees tell it, there's this chick, right? And first she marries one bloke, and then, I don't know, maybe a falling asteroid hits him, and he dies. Anyway, then she marries his brother but he dies, and so on and so forth until she's married seven brothers turn and turn about. Now finally they're all dead and she dies too, seven times a widow, and not even one son to show for it. So tell us, Jesus, in the resurrection, which brother does she belong to? Can you hear the dark humour and the snickers? Like Northern Exposure, this is a story told to raise a laugh. There's no concern for the woman as a person. There's no acknowledgement of the terrible grief when a spouse dies, or the cruel whispers when a second marriage fails, or a third. Nor does it address the shame of childlessness in a culture where a woman's only worth is in her sons. In this story, the woman is simply an object passed from brother to brother to brother, and then used as an object to make fun of Jesus because the Sadducees have already made up their minds about resurrection. For them, it isn't a thing. As scripture, the Sadducees accepted the five books which make up Torah, that is Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And that was it. Since resurrection isn't mentioned in these five books, they reject the possibility. Instead, they believe that people live on through their descendants, and this is the basis of the Leveret Law. That is, in this law of Moses written by, for, and about men, if a man dies leaving no offspring, then his brother marries a widow and has children in his name, to ensure that his name continues and that the property is passed down through the correct bloodline. So this is a context in which the Sadducees tell their tale and ask, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? In other words, who gets her? Well, clearly the question isn't genuine. They don't believe in resurrection, and they don't give a rats about the woman. They just want Jesus to look ridiculous, and his answer doesn't matter to them at all. 
But the question of resurrection matters to anyone who has lived this story. For example, to anyone who's had multiple spouses. It matters to anyone whose life is dismissed or crushed by others, or used simply to raise a laugh or to prove a point. It matters to every one of us who's had to say goodbye to somebody that we love, and it mattered, of all people, to the Pharisees. We've just heard from the Sadducees. Now, they were a powerful aristocratic group who controlled temple worship and collaborated with the Romans to do so. They were doing well in this life. They knew that wealth and power prevail. Why would they need resurrection? But the Pharisees took a different view. They were less concerned with protecting the temple and more concerned with the nation as a whole. They could see the writing on the wall. Rome had invaded and would soon crush Israel. And in fact, tonight's story wasn't written down until decades after Jesus' death and years after the temple had been destroyed and over half a million Jews had been killed by the Romans. For Israel, it was yet another devastating episode in a long history of brutal invasion. And so the Pharisees needed to know, where is God's justice? Because it's clearly not being delivered in this life now. Like the Sadducees, the Pharisees accepted Torah as scripture, but they also affirmed the prophets and the Psalms. And because the prophets pointed to God's coming day of justice and shalom, the Pharisees had faith in resurrection. They believed that the day will come when the dead will be raised up body, mind and spirit, and God's justice will finally be served. Now we've heard the prophets and we've listened to Jesus. We can imagine this promised new age. It's an age where women are no longer bought and sold in marriage or defined by their father, their husband, or their womb. In this age, the curse of Genesis is repealed, and the patriarchy is defeated once and for all. There's good news for the poor, there's release for the captive, and recovery of insight and understanding. The oppressed will finally be free. All debt will be cancelled. No more debtors' prison, no more selling sisters and daughters to settle debt, as indeed still happens in India even now. In God's new age, people's suffering won't be used as a pawn in political games. In that age, sexuality and race and class and gender will no longer be used to oppress. Indeed, the status quo will be reversed and the poor raised up and the powerful proud brought low. In God's new age, there will be peace and justice for everyone. Not just for powerful Romans, or for aristocratic Sadducees, or for media titans, or mining magnates, or billionaires, or kleptocrats, or dictators, but justice and peace for all people. This is a resurrection which many Pharisees can envision and which the Sadducees wholeheartedly reject. So you can imagine the crowd pushing in agog as the Sadducees tell their story and then taunt. So tell us, Jesus, in the resurrection, which brother does she belong to? And maybe some of the crowd are women, or Pharisees, or visionaries, or dreamers. 
maybe some of them are wondering, will the woman always be an object of scorn, no more than a womb being handed from one man to the next? Or will justice one day be served? Well, Jesus' reply cuts to the heart of the matter. For those who are deemed worthy of resurrection from the dead, he says, marriage isn't even a thing. People will no longer be passed around like property, and he's not referring to men. Then he mentions a story from Torah which even the Sadducees can't reject, Moses and the burning bush. The fact that the dead are raised, says Jesus, Moses himself showed in the story of the bush, where he speaks of the sovereign God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. So Jesus takes the Pharisee line, but he pushes it further than even they had dared to imagine. The Pharisees trusted in an age to come, a future moment when the dead are raised into divine presence and divine justice. Jesus, he's suggesting something bigger, something grander, something so wildly explosive that even now we don't fully get it. But in his own resurrection, we see a glimpse. We know that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are all dead, but to God, they are all alive. We know that Jesus died, but to God and to us, he is alive. This doesn't mean that his death is negated or cancelled by the resurrection. Instead, it's just one episode in an ongoing life. When we meet him on the road, he is wounded, scarred. Yet he eats and drinks and breathes spirit into us. His crucified body is shockingly alive. So to God, death is not the opposite of life. It's part of life, but life doesn't stop at death, and death doesn't have the last word. Those who die in God continue to be alive to God. They continue to be held in God's love. And this is great news for those of us who grieve. But the news gets even better, because this story is part of a bigger story. So we know that when we dwell in Christ, and Christ dwells in us, we become part of his resurrected body, not just in God's future age, but right here and now. This is a full and flourishing life into which we are called. And contrary to what the Pharisees or most evangelicals believe, we don't need to wait to experience it. It's a life which breaks open tombs now and which unites the living and the dead now and fills the world with blessing now and breathes new spirit into us. It's a life which rejects the cynical claim that might is right or that God's justice is nothing but a pipe dream. Instead, it proclaims the power of vulnerability and self-giving love. It insists on the full humanity of all people and it seeks to embody love and justice and shalom in this day and age, even as it looks to God's future for completion. For children of God, Christ dwells in us such that we come radiantly alive in God, 
We embody God's love so fully that God's kingdom is glimpsed here and now. And when we too die, our living, our loving, and our experience of God's overflowing abundance and communion will only continue. For us, it doesn't matter what side of death we are on. God's life is bigger than death. We have been swept up into God's life, and this life goes on. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus speaks plainly. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Those who trust in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and trusts in me will never die. So let us trust in him. Let us give our lives ever more fully to him, that we might live freely and wholeheartedly into God's new age, right here and now. As we ship bodies and clean out closets and mourn our dead, and as we seek justice and work for shalom and love one another. And let us celebrate this life that death cannot hold the life that Jesus has shared among his community through the centuries and shares among us now. God's will be done. God's love be shown, both now and forever. Amen. There's always more to read on our website, that's sanctuarybaptist.org, including this week, a text of comfort and consolation from Isaiah chapter 61. Sanctuary is funded entirely by members and supporters, and if you'd like to support the work of this little church, you can make a donation via PayPal, and you'll find the details for this on the website. This week's reflection was prepared on the lands of the Pequang people of the Eastern Ma Nation, a land which was taken by force and has never been ceded. This week, like so much of the eastern coast of this continent, we have been pounded by rain. The rivers continue to flood, and low-lying paddocks are alive with pobblebonks and other frogs, croaking their songs of praise. I pay my respect to elders past and present. The peace of the land be with us all. Amen.